Good afternoon. Thank you all for coming on this uh, especially dreary day. Um, but thank you for coming to Hudson Institute for our, for our panel. My name is Lee Smith. I'm a senior fellow here at the Hudson Institute. And I want to introduce very, uh, very quickly the panel um, and uh, the subject. Of course, it's an especially timely subject, um, especially in the wake mm. of... Uh, on the wake of the September 13th, uh, November 13th attacks two weeks ago, and we've assembled a panel here that I think is uh, <coughs> a, a, a exceptionally well placed to discuss uh, discuss a host of these issues. So uh, I'll, allow me to introduce them. All the way at the uh, left is my colleague from the Weekly Standard, Christopher Caldwell, uh, who is the author of the critically acclaimed book Reflections on the Revolution in Europe, Immigration, Islam, and the West. Um, to his right is Benjamin Haddad, my colleague here at Hudson, a research fellow at Hudson. Um, next is Simone Dugalbert, and he is a uh, visiting fellow at Center for Strategic and International Studies. And while he, he is also a French diplomat, but while he is speaking today, he is representing his own views and certainly not that of the uh, French foreign ministry or the, uh, or the French government. Um, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. And Laure Manville is the uh, U.S. correspondent for Le Figaro, and she's been in Washington now for, uh, for eight years, so she's had a particularly uh, focused view of the Obama presidency here in Washington and relaying that back to uh, France. So without, further, uh, without <coughs> further ado, why don't we begin, and I believe that we arranged so that, Chris, you would, uh, you would start us off. Yeah, I, uh, uh, well, thank you very much, uh, Lee, for the introduction, and thank you, everyone, for um, coming here today. I think, the, I think the way these events usually uh, uh, work is that, uh, <coughs> that, that people prefer a conversation to speechifying, so I'll, mm. I'll just lay out a couple of themes I'd like to discuss today. The, the, other, um, the other day, I was in Passau in Germany, and as I came into... Um, as I came into the station, I noticed that there were that there were military men all along the platform, and and um, it was obvious that I was on a plane uh, on a train with um, uh, with uh, several cars full of refugees who were being moved from uh, uh, from the from Austria into Germany uh, Germany along this route. This is the the main train route passing from Austria into Germany that is used now that <coughs> Vienna has filled up and and and. Um, uh, uh, Munich has filled up, and several subsidiary places have filled up. This traffic tends to go through Passau. And I came off the train, and I said to a conductor, I said, um, so, what's with the, uh, so what's with all the uh, armed men on the, on, on, the, on, the, on the platform? And he just looked at me with this <clears throat> contemptuous look, and he said, where are you from? And I, <laughs> said, and I took it as a non-rhetorical question. I said, well... I'm from the United States. And he said, well then, you should know, because it's your foreign policy that created the Syrian <coughs> war and drove all these people into Europe, and it's the reason we have this problem here. Um, so I think that, 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 that this is a, the migration crisis in Europe is also a defense crisis, and it calls into question um, uh, the European relationship with, um, with the United States. But it calls into question even more the legitimacy of the European project. Um, and I think that we can see three, you can see three areas of the project to build a European Union crystallizing as being essentially similar um, in their innovations. 
The first is the European currency, which has failed over the last five years. The European currency was an attempt to create um, a financial policy, or let's say macroeconomic policy, without a central guiding um, uh, uh, economic uh, uh, government. Um, uh, so you just wrote guidelines and you wrote penalties into um, the European um, governing structures for countries that didn't obey those guidelines. That failed. The second of these is Schengen. Um, Schengen is the system of borders uh, in which um, there, are, there are no longer border controls internally with Europe. Um, and the uh, external borders are only lightly policed by European institutions like Frontex. Uh, in fact, what's supposed to happen is that each country is supposed to obey guidelines for, obeying, for, 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 for sealing off their external borders. That seems to be failing. And it's failing in a, in a, in a very interesting uh, way that we might get into later on today. Um, uh, you have the so-called Dublin agreements um, that make the first country that welcomes a refugee responsible for processing his refugee agreement. And, and what's happening in Europe now is Greece is not registering these people. They're waving them through, um, through the Balkans onto either Croatia or Hungary up to a, to a certain point, or Slovenia, and then into Austria. And all of these countries are just waving the, the, the refugees along. And so you have a, a sort of a tide of <coughs> lawlessness. This lawlessness that we described during the, the Euro crisis in Greece is sort of moving northward. And it now in, in infects Germany as, as, as well. Uh, and the third area, I would say, is defense. Um, and now that um, uh, France finds itself in what its president um, calls a war, um, it's, it's very interesting to see that the guidelines for European defense under which each um, uh, country was supposed, each of the old nation states was supposed to spend at least 2% of its uh, uh, GNP on, on, uh, on, on military and then uh, join together in solidarity to fight common threats has broken down. And we now have a situation in which the European powers that are really making a difference in the Middle East are, are France, Russia, and, uh, and, and it looks like from this week onward, Britain. So I'd say we have a breakdown along three fronts of the European Union, and I will stop there. Oh, this is terrific. Thanks very much, Chris. That's a uh, great introduction and a lot to a lot to come back to there. Um, Simon, if you would, uh, if, if sure. you could follow. Thanks. Um, thanks, Lee, and thanks to the Hassan Institute for, for having us uh, today. Um, what I thought I could do was to uh, quickly go through, I think, three uh, important questions uh, that relates to to the the French reaction to, to, to the attacks. Uh, the first one is to what extent uh, the terrorist attacks in Paris have uh, changed the French analysis about the situation in, in Syria. Um, I think from the very beginning of this crisis, the, the French analysis has been that, that the, the Islamic uh, State threat was, was much more a, a Syrian issue rather than an Iraq one, although the origins of the group were, were more in Iraq. Uh, but France has been very uh, has been very strong from the very beginning of the crisis to alert everyone that that uh, leaving the crisis degenerate in Syria would have uh, dramatic consequences for for Europe, and and I think uh, in the in in the, in the French analysis the attacks um, in Paris have only 
confirmed uh, this this uh, this view and 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 has actually uh, uh, reinforced it even further. Um, France hasn't changed, I think, its position with regard to the fact that uh, there will be no solution to the security threat posed to Europe by the Islamic State uh, without a political solution in Damascus. And so whereas the rhetorics have been shifting a little bit towards explaining that, that the priority for France was the, the military fight uh, against the Islamic State, uh, I think it doesn't make uh, the importance of, of uh, looking for a political solution in Damascus uh, less significant. And so I think we shouldn't take the, the rhetorics too much for a change of, of position in the, in the French system. Uh, likewise, I don't think there is a, a, a belief in France that uh, airstrikes and, and additional airstrikes uh, will be uh, the magic solution to deal with uh, ISIS in, in, in Syria. Uh, I think there is uh, a recognition uh, that France, uh, who did not participate in the early stages of the milita military campaign against the Islamic State in Syria, it participated only um, in, in, uh, in the military campaign in Iraq, uh, that there was a genuine need to do more against the Islamic State in Syria. But, but that was more a, a slow recognition that took place over the past year that, than, than a real change that, that occurred because of the, of the attacks. Mm -hmm. uh, and and, and I, I think as in the United States, there is a belief that um, this campaign will not be won politically uh, only by, by airstrikes. And at the end of the day, there will need to be a need for, for holding the territory and that will not be possible uh, without a political solution in, in Damascus. Can I just ask very quickly for confirmation when you... Sure. So I, I understand <coughs> that, um, that um, Hollande is the one European leader who still says that Assad must go, or that was at least before the strikes. Yeah. So when you talk about a political solution, the French solution or the French belief is still that Assad must go. I just want to clarify. Of course, that. of course. Okay. I think... Uh, great, no, no, okay. Nobody Thank at you. the highest level in France really believed that Assad could be, could be part of the future, of the political future of Syria. There might be some more flexibility as to uh, how long he could be part of the political transition to a new uh, political regime in Syria. But, but the fact that he cannot be part of it at the end of the day is well established and hasn't changed uh, after the Paris attacks. Okay. No, thanks. Um, and excuse me uh, for interrupting. Sure, I just want to no problem. Thank you, Smith. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. France hasn't changed much its, 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 its analysis of the situation. The second important question, I think, is to assess uh, whether France has uh, the ability and the capabilities to sustain its military engagement uh, abroad uh, and its security military efforts at home. Um, when France is explaining that it is at war, uh, I think we have to um, be very clear about uh, what's about military operations abroad, uh, which is why, what France has been doing for quite some time in, in Mali, in Sahel, uh, in Central African Republic, but also now in Iraq and Syria. Uh, and, and, and what France is doing at home, which is not uh, being at war, but which is engaging military forces uh, to bring additional support to the police and gendarmerie forces to secure sensitive locations. Uh, but, but altogether, this, this, um, this deployment of French military forces abroad and at home uh, is creating huge constraints uh, for, for the French military. Uh, 
uh, financial constraints that, that uh, the government has addressed by increasing significantly the, the by uh, cancelling cuts that were supposed to happen over the, the period of 2014-2019, you have to bear in mind that France was supposed to cut its military forces by 34,000 uh, uh, person, personnel uh, in the French Ministry of Defense. And, and after, the, after the, the January Charlie Hebdo attacks, and, and these attacks, the decision has been taken to cancel about 25,000 of those cuts. So it's actually 25,000 additional personnel that will be brought in the, the Ministry of Defense over the next few years. Uh, and, and this will take place for active forces, active duty forces, but also for intelligence mission uh, and for the cyber mission. So, so there is a recognition that uh, France needs to do more uh, and financially I think this is very much sustainable uh, uh, but there is also the recognition as France has been uh, saying for the past few years that it needs more from its European partners and, and that's why France invoked uh, as you know the, the mutual defense clause of the European Union and, and I think um, of course things you know in Europe are, are usually a little bit uh, slow and, and not as impressive as we may like them to be on the military front but still uh, I think it's very significant that Germany uh, at least at the cabinet level uh, we'll see if, if the parliament confirms it uh, is making plans to bring uh, military resources to, to the coalition in Iraq and Syria although not in a, in a combating role but still I think uh, on German standards this is a very significant uh, a uh, decision of solidarity for France. Uh, the UK is also going to bring uh, uh, capabilities that will bring <coughs> a military added value to the coalition. Uh, qualitative, I would say, more than quantitative, mm. but we'll see how the vote is, is going later on. Uh, but the Europeans are responding uh, on the military front. Uh, there is a lot to be done on the non-military front. Uh, perhaps we can talk a more about that later yes. on. But, but I think that... Um, with, with that help, uh, uh, it should be able to alleviate the burden for the French military and, al and allow it on the longer term to, to continue its, its engagement. Uh, lastly, uh, th there is one question that I have been asked a lot about uh, since the attacks and especially since President Hollande uh, visited uh, Moscow uh, after having visited Washington last week, is, is what France is really looking for from Russia in Syria. Uh, and, and on that front, I would say two things that we can discuss later on. The, the first is that uh, I think France has no illusion that uh, its strategic objectives in Syria remain at odds with Russia's strategic objectives. Uh, Russia is an ally to President Assad, who France is saying should not be part of the future of, of Syria. So there is a, a clear... Uh, opposition of, of strategic objectives here, but I think uh, there is also the recognition in, in the French minds that Russia could still uh, make a stronger contributions to the common, the common enemy that, that, that we have, uh, which is the Islamic State. And so uh, the, the French efforts towards Russia aren't uh, based on, on the belief that, that Russia is going to change uh, its strategic course in Syria uh, today, it is based on the idea that, that there is space for a tactical cooperation that can bring an added military value to the fight against the Islamic State. And perhaps this can translate also to, in the near future, more flexibility on the political side of things. But, <coughs> but that remains to be seen. And the second thing I, I wanted to say about 
that dialogue, that cooperation, it's, it's not a, a coalition, I think it's mm -hmm. more a coordination and perhaps a cooperation, uh, is that nobody, I think, in the French system is really thinking about uh, trading concessions in Ukraine for Russian concessions in Syria. Uh, I think believing, believing that could happen is, is, a, is a fundamental misunderstanding on how the European Union works. Uh, I think it is at odds with whatever, everything that France has done uh, in the past couple of years uh, uh, to deal with the Ukraine crisis. And I would start perhaps with even the, the cancellation of the, of the sale of the, of the Mistral ships to Russia. Uh, more can be said on the sanctions. But but nobody should believe that, that there is space for doing some kind of deal of the sort I described. So I'll stop there. That's terrific. Thank you, Simon. Thanks very much. Uh, and again, a lot, to, uh, a lot to circle back to shortly. Uh, Benjamin, would you like to, I believe, that? Um, yeah, uh, thank, you. thank you very much, Lee, and thank you, everyone, for, uh, for being here. Um, I think you know, the terrorist threat for France and for Europeans is not new. Uh, the, the, the French have been fighting terrorism in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, we had threats coming from uh, uh, Hezbollah attacks carried out by Islam, uh, Algerian Islamic radicals in the, in the 1990s. But what is new is um, you know, not only the, the scope and, and the methods in these attacks, you know, the fact that we've had uh, suicide bombers and eight of them uh, for the first time uh, on, the, on the French soil, the <coughs> simultaneous aspects of the attack, the, the, the scope, the number of, uh, of civilian victims who were, who were killed, but it's also the, the complexity of it. Uh, and how this threat has really accelerated in the last uh, three years, uh, four years, since uh, the start of the Syrian war. Um, I think Hollande actually summarized how complex uh, and multifaceted this threat was in his speech in front of the National Assembly a couple of days after the, uh, the attacks. He said, these attacks were prepared, planned in Syria. Uh, they were organized in Belgium. Uh, and they were carried out in France with French homegrown complicity. And that shows you the, you know, the three different fronts on which we're going to fight uh, this, um, this terror threat for a long time. Uh, obviously, you have Syria, which is the intellectual center of gravity of it all. You know, ISIS acting as an, as an inspiration, a magnet, and probably in these attacks, actually, really more of a command and control uh, um, center, much more than it was in the, in the previous attacks. Most of the, uh, the, the terrorists that carried out the attacks, whether they're French citizens or Belgian citizens, actually went back and forth uh, to Syria, especially uh, Abdelhamid Abahoud, who was the uh, you know, so-called mastermind of, uh, of these attacks, uh, the uh, Belgian citizen who, uh, who was killed in the assault in, uh, in, in Saint-Denis. And, and I think, as, as Simon clearly, uh, clearly said, uh, the, the French have been trying to push for a more proactive uh, policy to stop the Syrian war. Uh, for the last few years, I think one of the, the, the big frustration and turning points uh, on this crisis has been the non-enforcement of the red line uh, on the use of chemical weapons by the Assad regime against its own population two years ago. If you uh, recall correctly, uh, the French president, uh, François Hollande, had already given uh, orders to the French uh, fighter jets to, to strike Syrian facilities, and we all learned at the last minute of uh, Obama's about face um, and, and, and deciding to, to strike a deal with, uh, with Putin and the Assad, uh, the Assad regime uh, on this. And, and since then, we've only seen the, the situation deteriorate, the rise of radicals <laughs> as, a, as a response to repression of Assad, of its, of its own population. And, uh, and so that, that, that's for the Syrian front. But obviously, I mean, there is, 
there's a European dimension to it. Uh, as you said, these attacks were planned in Belgium, so they've you know deftly exploited the uh, shortcomings of uh, intelligence and security, notably the security cooperation in, in Europe, and especially in a country like Belgium that has seen the highest by far proportion of uh, European radicals going to fight in uh, in Syria. They've been able to uh, get uh, weapons, equipment, uh, rent the cars, and prepare. Um, uh, with you know going totally uh, unnoticed, and this this really calls for stronger cooperation. I think uh, that's you know um, uh, Simon mentioned that um, the, the French uh, you know French President Hollande called uh, for the first time for the clause of uh, mutual assurance, mutual security that is in the European Lisbon Treaty, the sort of equivalent of the European Constitution. Uh, it's the first time it was called. It's it's the equivalent of the Article Five uh, collective security uh, clause, you know, the NATO one, at the European level. And the fact that he asked for European support rather than Article 5 actually says a lot symbolically and politically. It shows, you know, the, uh, the fact that the French consider they've been fighting a little bit on their own uh, against terrorism. Now this is a European threat, not only because they've prepared in Belgium, but if you see the sequence of ev events in the few days that followed the Paris attacks, you have a foiled attack against the stadium when Angela Merkel was supposed to appear in, in Germany. And you had the shutdown for a few days of, uh, of Brussels over uh, an imminent threat. Uh, so this really shows clearly that this is now a, a European-wide threat that asks for European responses. Some of the few responses were encouraging. Uh, the European leaders uh, called for um, you know, stronger cooperation on you know, technical items like what we call the passenger name rec record, which would allow European countries to share uh, data and information on, on, on passenger on planes at the European level, stronger uh, border control that you mentioned, and you know, ec external border control of the, the Schengen uh, area, stronger control on, uh, on uh, arms trafficking at the European level, uh, and also obviously a, a bigger involvement of European countries militarily outside of borders on the fight against terrorism. And the vote that is held today, if I'm correct, at the House of Commons <coughs> is absolutely critical because you know, the, the Brits have taken, I think, um, a much um, less ambitious role on the international stage militarily these last few years. And, you know, they, they are the second, they're, you know, with, with France, one of the two critical military powers of the continent. And, and we obviously need uh, more of their involvement. And the, the third dimension that uh, Hollande mentioned is uh, the domestic one. You know, they were carried in France with French homegrown uh, complicity. And it's true that over the last few years, even though the French intelligence and security uh, agencies were historically well prepared to deal with this threat, uh, they've been overwhelmed by the acceleration of, um, of the jihadi threat over the last uh, few years. To give you a, uh, a striking figure, um, the French intelligence has a list that it calls the Fichier S, the S list, uh, that is top secret and has a number of names of people who are suspected to be close to radical groups. That doesn't mean they're going to carry out attacks. That, m that means that sometimes they went on radical <laughs> websites, they've been close to a cell, or maybe they went to jail and were radicalized in jail. And we estimate that we have about 11,000 people on this list. And today, if I'm not <coughs> wrong, the DGSI, which is the French Counterintelligence Domestic Agency, has 3,500 agents and is about to recruit to get 4,000. And that is not a lack of political will, a lack of uh, uh, understanding of this threat. It's just that you don't, you know, train agents and hire people overnight. You know, it's a, it's a lack of resources. You need the human intelligence. You need the 
the cultural knowledge to infiltrate these groups. And that means it's, you know, it's, it's going to be a long uh, uphill battle to, uh, to be able to, to cope with the threat. And this is going to test, I think, the, the resilience of, of the French society, of our liberal models, of the European societies in the, in the long run. Uh, I heard a uh, French intelligence expert um, just after the attack tell me, you know, after Charlie Hebdo, we thought it was the French 9-11. Everyone said it was the French 9-11. But actually, it's, it was sort of reassuring to say this because 9-11 uh, being the sort of peak of horror, uh, we thought you know, we've experienced the worst, and now, uh, you know, now we're going to fight back. And now we're saying it's the French 9-11. Uh, um, the truth is there's still a very heightened risk of, of attack. Uh, intelligence agents you know, often say that there's no zero risk. Uh, there are actually other attacks that were foiled uh, during the year. There was one against, uh, actually, that were linked also to Abaoud, who was killed in Saint-Denis. Uh, one was uh, foiled uh, uh, in, um, on the Thalys train, you remember, with the American Marines who intervened at the last minute. Uh, the other one was... That was, that was uh, Abaoud operation as well. Uh, absolutely, was, uh, yeah. In August, there was another one in uh, Villejuif uh, last spring <coughs> against, against a church that was foiled just because the jihadi shot himself in the foot and called the, uh, called the, um, the emergencies because he shot himself in the foot. So, you know, because of his own clumsiness. So it's a, it's, it's a long-term battle. And I think this is really where uh, there's an alternative. There's, you know, we're at the turning point. Um, either we take the fight with Syria, but the only power that really has the ability to change the balance of forces on, in, in Syria, both fight against ISIS, but also encourage a political uh, solution without Assad is the United States. And it's true that uh, in you know, the European perception of U.S. policy in the Middle East right now is that Obama doesn't consider the Middle East to be as central a strategic issue as it was under previous administrations, that the U.S. Uh, has more of a risk of being overstretched than anything else. Uh, and so it's taking the backseat on this. But I think now there has to be an understanding among American uh, policy-making circles that it's not only about the Middle East, which is tragic enough, but it's also you know, down the road about the resilience of European societies, which have become a new front of the Syrian uh, civil war uh, in terms of terrorism, in terms of the refugee flow that we have to uh, uh, cope with. The, the debate about refugees, by the way, if you allow me this side mm -hmm. note, is, is interesting when you see that uh, it's taking so much space in the American presidential campaign right now, about 10,000 people who are fleeing persecution. Uh, in Europe, we, have a, we estimate we have about two million refugees at the borders of Europe. So this is you know, the, the really the difference in, in, in degree and nature of, of, uh, of this issue for the Europeans and for, for Americans. Because if the United States doesn't get more involved, then the what is the alternative? The alternative in the Middle East for Europeans uh, reluctantly is Russia, which I mean, with Vladimir Putin, who is the only one maybe who has a, a clear strategy, a clear objective, <laughs> which is clearly at odds, and I think I totally agree with, with Timon. I think there's no illusion among French policy circles at the Elysee or at the foreign ministry that uh, you know, Putin is not a serious partner in the political transition in, in, in Syria. But for the moment, he's alone. He's alone with a clear policy, and he's trying to use this to create a wedge between Europeans and Americans. And uh, I, I would say that Hollande probably try to outmaneuver this by going to Moscow and, and you know, in a way, highlighting the differences <laughs> we have with him. But there is a clearly risk uh, that with continued um, 
American withdrawal, uh, Russia will be seen as the only credible partner. And that's the same thing at the domestic level with the rise of populist movement, anti-liberal movement, anti-European movement, like the National Front in, in France. This is the clear uh, mirror of, of Putin at the, at the international level. And that is why, by the way, you know, Putin has been very uh, uh, effective at supporting these movements, at funding them like the National <laughs> Front uh, in France. If we don't find a common European solution uh, to this, uh, an inclusive one, the one that doesn't include going back to national borders or starting xenophobic policies, but that is you know, uh, robust and, and Europe-wide, we'll be able to roll back these, uh, these movements. So I just, you know, I, I think it, I just want to show it, it's a, it's a threat that is at, at different levels, but at each level, there's a, there's a solution that will be, I think, dramatic in, in the long term. Uh, and, and I think we have to be conscious of this, mm. both in Europe and uh, in the <coughs> Benjamin, thanks very much. That was terrific. Um, Laura, if you could uh, yes. if you could follow up and yes. um, finish off our first round. Thanks. I wanted first to, to come back. I mean, s most of the things I'm going to talk about, Thanks. Th first of all, thank you for inviting thank me. Thank you for being here. Yeah. So um, I'm going to come back to some of the themes which have been discussed already by, by uh, the others, but I want, first of all, to start from uh, uh, an image which I remember in, after the January attacks uh, against Charlie Hebdo. I was uh, with many of my compatriots. I think Benjamin was there as well. We, were, we gathered uh, in Washington for some kind of morning uh, gathering of French people, a lot of American uh, friends and, and you know, people I didn't know actually joined. There were about you know, a few thousand people. And I remember the sort of incredible emotion and surprise at the same time that I felt when I heard in a very low tone, but still, you know, it was there, the French people singing the Marseillaise. It was, it was very low, it was nearly timid, but they sang. And I can tell you, for a French person standing there, it was very emotional. What is really interesting is that a few months later, after these attacks, again, you know, the day after the attacks, the French decide to gather under the uh, statue of Lafayette uh, in Lafayette Square. And uh, you have, uh, I would say, maybe 1,000, 2,000 people there, and also Americans, French people, a lot of young people, a lot of young people that time, m much more, I think, than the first time. And this time, they are, they are singing loud. They're singing several times and extremely loudly this Marseillaise. And yeah. it's, it's very interesting because I, I think I've never heard in the last few months as many uh, Marseillaise sung you know, across the board, in front, across the world. And, and, I, and I think this is very significant. I think that there is in France an awakening of patriotism. And it's something which comes from a very deep level of the consciousness of our nation. I think that the French, in, in January, had recognized the threat, but they were, they were still, you know, a lot of uh, criticism, people saying, okay, it's because Charlie Hebdo were so rude about Islam that they provoked these, these folks, and, you know, they answered back, and it was about blasphemy, etc. So there were some reserves, there were a lot of debates, especially on the left, there were some kind of nearly justifying somehow the attacks by, you know, you've been, Charlie Hebdo were not uh, politically correct enough. And then this time there is a totally different, it, it is a change of mood. And you have the French policy, I think, 
really, in his really uh, striking majority, saying this is a, a threat which is for real, this is a threat which is for long, and we have to respond. And then, and, and there is this, this response which comes from very far away, and I find it interesting, and I, I want to, to submit to you some kind of gaullist thought, actually, about what is France. Because, you know, I, I know that Bob Kagan, for instance, and many other people have for years said that in Europe, you know, we are Venus, we are not Mars anymore, we have lost the idea that we have to fight, we've been, uh, you know, <laughs> sitting under the umbrella of the American, you know, uh, army, and we don't, we, we, we're not going to fight anymore, we are postmodern, post-Westphalian, mm -hmm. uh, and post-religious. And I think, uh, at the moment, you must say that the French people have never had so many flags across the country, and you, you have a very interesting uh, signal that many French guys, young, are enrolling in the army, which is something very new also. <laughs> and, and, and to go back to De Gaulle, De Gaulle always said that the French nation was something autonomous, which had a, a life of its own. And, and, and that, you know, in terms of, in, in time of, 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 uh, uh, of uh, danger, this, uh, the soul of the nation would awake. And I think that's something we are witnessing now. What is interesting, this is the first level I wanted to talk about. There is another level, which is the political level. The political level is the level of the political elite and intellectual elites in France. What are they thinking? I think that uh, actually uh, Christopher put his finger on part of the issue when he sort of made a pretty blunt assessment of uh, you know, the different failures of the European Union. And one has to understand that the political uh, software of, of the European elites, and mostly in France, because France has been actually the engine of Europe from the beginning, and I think the brain of Europe, to some extent, of its dream of this, you know, Europe without border, uh, <laughs> sort of federalist uh, project which was in March, etc. And, uh, and now they are in shock. They've, they've been hit by the horror of this attack, and suddenly they understand that the project they had is in real danger, and maybe it was actually, in part, an illusionary one. I mean, I, I'm, it's a question I'm asking. I think Benjamin would disagree on that. No, this is, this is, I'm, I'm very happy you're saying this, because I'm thinking this was the first question I wanted to ask of all of you, so please, you, you, you answer this first. Yes, and, and what I wanted to say is that, is that you have the question of at what level are we going to fight this fight? And I think that the French people, of course, they understand exactly what Benjamin said when he says this is going to be fought at these multi-different levels that he's brilliantly you know, de uh, described. But there is this understanding that, yes, we have to fight at the European level, but is the European level at this moment equipped, equipped uh, you know, in the sense of militarily, politically and intellectually, and with the will to fight that we need. And, and that's why I think there is a, a question of what are we going to do? We have to somehow uh, understand that in this time, uh, uh, this tragical time, the nation state is needed because the nation state is real. I mean, the European Union in, in, in many ways is, is a construction and which, has, which has not been filled with content. And uh, the question of the borders, we realize that these borders, it, it's been a catastrophe when you think that you know, most of these terrorist uh, 
French-born or Belgian-born have been able to go back and forth throughout the, throughout the border because these borders, as I think the former director of Interpol said, was a, a, a welcome sign. The open borders regime was a welcome sign for terrorists. They could move absolutely easily. And I think that there is a recognition in France <laughs> that we have to somehow to toughen up the border regime on the nation state level. And, and I think that you know, there is a debate, of course, in, in France and throughout Europe and in, in the US. And I was participating in a debate last week in, at the Brookings. And some of the people argued that you should never get back the, the, the borders, uh, national borders, because then it's the end of Europe, it's the end of the dream, and it's going to be a terrible <coughs> you know, tragedy. But I'm, I'm you know, just saying that uh, maybe it's not forever, first of all, and maybe it's necessary, because uh, I, mean, I mean, I'm old enough to remember that we ha uh, Europe lived, existed before Schengen, and it was a pretty, uh, you know, normal uh, place. And uh, I think we can live with control at the border. It's not, it doesn't mean the end of European culture. It doesn't mean the end of the European Union. But it is, I think, absolutely necessary <laughs> at this point if we want to protect our, ho our house to close the door, close the windows. You know, I mean, to be to be vigilant. So I think there is going to be a huge push <laughs> from the pol from the French to toughen up these policies. And, uh, and what is going to be interesting is to what extent the, the, uh, the, the current elite is going to be able to toughen up the game without mm. you know, turning nationalist. I think that uh, Benjamin mentioned that, that there is a threat, of course, because you have these ultra-right parties which are extremely active at the moment. And they say, look at that. This is exactly what we, what we were saying. We have failed, so let's go back to a, a very strong national nationalist policy and, and my, my, my view and, and argue that it is possible to find a, a, a middle ground between being naive and, and refuse to take any common sense steps and, and becoming, you know, and sort of shifting to some kind of extremist uh, type of policy. So that's what I wanted to say. I'm going to leave out many of the topics which have been discussed. Maybe one, I would say one word about the mm -hmm. Russia issue because okay. I've covered Russia for 20 years. So I have some views on what is happening there. And um, I, I, uh, I disagree a little bit with what you said both about the fact that the Russian elite is, uh, the French elite is abs absolutely cognizant uh, that there is no way we should do any trade-off on, uh, on, uh, with Russia well, we on, didn't say on, the French on elite, sanctions. We said the French government. Yeah, you said the, gov uh, the government, but I think Benjamin so said a bit more. Oh, yeah, no, I meant, yeah, you meant, the, you meant the political. Because okay. Of course, on the right, uh, yeah. On, yeah, on the right, it's different. But, but then we agree. But what I wanted to point for the audience is that in France, we have to understand that despite the fact that actually Hollande has been holding his ground pretty steadily, saying, okay, we should not. Uh, there, there shouldn't be trade-offs. I mean, he didn't say that actually explicitly, but uh, sure. apparently it is the, the, the way they think, I hope. Uh, there, are, there is a huge part of the political elite yeah. in France which thinks otherwise. And I, I was absolutely struck, you know, I think a few days after the attacks, uh, François Fillon, who was former prime minister of France, is not an ultra-right politician. He's really the sort of, you know, uh, I would say moderate, you know, mainstream right. And he said, it, it is, of course, we have to lift the sanctions with Russia. And they are, you know, Sarkozy actually is in favor of, uh, I don't know if he said that, you know, explicitly, yes, but yes. he's in favor 
of you know, a huge rapprochement with the Russians. That he said that the Mistral, that not sending the Mistral to, to Russia was a huge mistake. So you ha have to understand that the, Russian, the Russians have been pretty bad, I think, in their policy in Syria. And there was a very good piece by Thomas Friedman, I think, a few days ago saying, well, the Russians have, have not been particularly great. You know, they had this huge Sunni threat inside. And they, now they, they are, you know, they have put the whole Sunni world against them. They, they're not doing great in Syria. But at the same time, they are doing quite well in Europe. And I think one has to understand that the, the, I think the foreign policy of the Russians in Syria is only a way to get to Europe. And that the main battlefield for the Russians is a battlefield with the United States and that the, the stakes is Europe. Because the, 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 uh, the Russians, they want to convince Europe that the states have been absolutely unable to ensure their security, that they are allied with Saudi Arabia, with countries which are actually a threat to Europe, to Europe like Saudi Arabia, the Gulf <coughs> countries, Turkey, which is now, they say, look at Turkey, it's a dangerous actor, and the, the Americans are aligned with them. Why don't you ally with us? Because we can guarantee much better the security <laughs> And it's a natural alliance. And I think this has a lot of echoes in France, growing echoes. And, and we should really be aware of that. So I, no, I, I think that's great. And, and I'd, I'd, like to be able to, I'd like to be able to circle back around to, <coughs> to Russia's stuff. It, it's, it's very interesting. I think it's uh, fundamental insofar as Syria and the rest of the region is concerned. And certainly, I think in lots of ways, you can see that Putin <laughs> has levers on Europe in lots of different ways, as does Turkey, in, in, in a way. But I want to go back to one of the, th one of the issues that, that you started to raise. And first, I want to ask Chris, um, because I think maybe we'll, we'll get everyone to, or we'll get you and Chris, Christopher to gang up on Ben. Uh, I, so Christopher, if you would pick up Laurel's idea, I mean, so what about? Pick uh, it up. I pick it up, I hold it to my chest, <laughs> yeah. and embrace it. She's absolutely right about everything. <laughs> She's 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 absolutely right about this, and I. Is I, this a good thing, or is it a, it's like to see Europe on the what teetering on the on, on, on the edge of the abyss? Or yes, what? because it's nothing. Because it's a it's a because these countries have entrusted their security and prosperity to a chimera. Okay, there's no European army. Um, uh, uh, but, but European elites have said that, that Europe will protect them from this kind of thing. There's no European intelligence service. But European uh, elites have said that, you know, this will, will keep you safe from, from, from terrorism. Um, uh, there's a highly unpopular European arrest warrant. People don't want this. And, I, and, 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 and so you're better to have, you're better to place your faith in something real than in something fake. And um, uh, I, I would say that, you know, I was struck reading uh, an article in the New, in the New York Review of Books um, uh, this morning by Michael Ignatieff. And it was, a, it was a, a sort of a classic distillation of, I mean, it's very intelligent, written a lot of very intelligent things about the war on, on terror. Uh, but this was a classic, pure distillation of the human rights view of of what's going on in, uh, with, with ISIS in Europe now. And he said, um, ISIS is trying to draw the West into a war in the Middle East, but we cannot play their game. And ISIS is also trying to 
uh, create a civil war in Europe, and we cannot play their game. So it means we can't exert middle, middle, uh, uh, military pressure in the Middle East. We can't crack down on anything in Europe. We can't do anything. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like a, it's, it's like the reductio ad absurdum of this guy, that, this idea that terrorists win. Like, if we do anything to fight the terrorists, the terrorists win, you know? And, um, you know, Benjamin's example um, of fichier S, and, uh, uh, which is something, it's the perfect example to, to bring up in this context. It's something that, that uh, uh, Ruhl Gerecht has written a lot of good things about in, in, in the standard. You know, there's a, it's a very difficult thing to surveil uh, terrorists and potential terrorists. And I think that when I used to follow this and, I, and used to read Ruel and others like him more carefully, I think that, that, that the French were keeping an eye on, I may be wrong about this, but I believe 800 to 1,200 really hardened cases. This is like a subgroup of this, this fichier S. And they were able to do it. They were able to do it by infiltrating mosques. Since the war with ISIS in, in, in Syria, this group has got a little bit bigger. Not that much bigger, maybe like up to 2,000. But, they, but the French are now out of personnel. They can't follow these guys. And you saw what happened with the Kawachi brothers, right, with the Charlie right. Hebdo bombing. These were guys who in the summer of the year, uh, of the year before last, you know, the, 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 the intelligence services underwent a, a, a periodic review and it was, it's kind of like fantasy football, you know what I mean? Who's going who's gonna to be a big performer next week? And, and the, and the Kawachis, mm -hmm. they were just below the cut. So they took their tail off of them, okay? Um, now, when we, when we talk about, you know, sort of like being all human rightsy about this, it's great if you have the resources to do it. But if you bring in a certain num number of refugees from... Syria, of course they're not all terrorists. Of course they're, 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 many of them have a totally legitimate reason to be coming to France. But you're also going to maybe double that pool of people that you're incapable of keeping under surveillance as it is. And, and so there's, a, there's, just a pragmatic, there's just a pragmatic problem that comes up. Benjamin, I see you. Uh, uh, I, a couple points. But first on the refugee, I mean, let's be serious. This has nothing to do with refugee issue. So you know, we shouldn't even be discussing it this way. Well, look, there, uh, there, the, the refugee issue, we, you know, we can debate the, uh, the resources we have to integrate them. Uh, what, you know, is it better even for them to be in Europe, to be in neighboring countries? Let me put it like this. I, I, okay. I mean, these attacks are carried out by French and Belgian citizens. And most of them, uh, I, you know, I don't remember the biography of all of that. I think they were all born French and Belgian citizens. Uh, we have a problem of a very, very small minority of people who get radicalized over the internet, in prison, who are usually delinquents and violent before becoming um, uh, radical Muslims, or even you know, sometimes before becoming Muslims, because a lot of them are converts. You know, 25% of, uh, of the radicalized people we're talking about on these lists are actually uh, converts. They're people are looking for a fight, for a quest for meaning, for violence, you know, whatever it is. It, they're psychologically vulnerable and brainwashed. Uh, and, and you know, and then going to Syria, but this has nothing to do with the with the refugee issue. Uh, these are people who are fleeing both Assad persecution and uh, and ISIS. Uh, who, if I you know, may be a bit provocative about this, might actually be a great intelligent asset on what's going on in Syria, 
because they you know they know the ground they know the, <coughs> the situation uh, that doesn't mean we have to you know overnight welcome all of them there's lots of you know extremely complicated mm -hmm. considerations and we also have to understand the the qualms <coughs> that some people in public opinion can have about this and you know in countries where you have close to 10% unemployment like like France why but should I mean, we understand the qualms if it has nothing to do with it because I think you have, you know, you had qualms before the attacks, you know, but, but seeing, you know, these people as all potential terrorists is, is first misunderstanding I the nature of the threat. I explicitly said the opposite of that. It's the, it's the yeah, tiniest, but it's an infin infinitesimal group. Yeah, but, th but that's it. If the policy consequence, you know, of an infinitesimal uh, group, you know, and, and once again, like, they don't, they don't need refugees to come into uh, to Europe. Some of them are already, you know, have already radicalized cells in, uh, in Europe. No, I, I, think, I think the way you put it before was very interesting that it wasn't, we can certainly move it away from the refugee issue, but when you talked before about you have Paris, you have Belgium, and you have Syria, yeah. so insofar as that expands, maybe not, even, uh, maybe not even a pool of people, but it expands a number of places you have to look out for in a number of different contexts. So I thought that was a very, I thought that was a very good way to put it, yeah. right? So Syria is an issue in that way. And, and, and exactly, when, when, when the attacks happened, I thought, I was like, wait a second, all these guys were traveling on, on EU documents, right? Um, so, you know, or, or they all had them, whether or not they were traveling. The, the refugee route is actually probably the most complicated to take if you want to carry out an attack against the, the European soil. You know, the, tr the truth is, it's much easier to have a European passport and go through Turkey and, and, you know, and take a train. You know, the, I was S Simon, Simon wanted yeah. to say something too. I just want to make sure that we got. Uh, I have several remarks on okay. what right, has please. been said, but but uh, I, I think on that very point, uh, we would have the same problem without refugees. Uh, it's simply right. a question of of uh, European coordination, of of uh, information sharing, of passengers' data, of of uh, control of the external borders <laughs> of the Schengen space rather than control of the inner borders within the Schengen space. So uh, I, I would uh, fundamentally agree with Benjamin on that, that uh, the, 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 the more we can uh, separate uh, the refugee issue and how we handle it with, with the security threat uh, represented by homegrown terrorists activated uh, by a uh, uh, foreign crisis, uh, the better politically. <laughs> Uh, and, and for the sake of, of, of the facts, I think it's, it, it's true, it's, it's relevant too. Um, I just wanted to come back to two points that uh, a few of, of us mentioned. The first one on uh, patriotism. Uh, yes, uh, there is more patriotism in France these days. I, I think France has never been a country that has been shy of, pat of being patriotic in itself. I think France is a strong nation state, but, but I, I take your point. I think what matters is what we do with that uh, patriotism. Yeah. And, and I think so far, uh, the, the, early re the early political reaction that, that pollsters can analyze uh, is that uh, the far right is, is politically benefiting uh, from, from the attacks. Uh, and, and that's just an observation. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I would add that, in my view, we should not overstate the case that the attacks are, are, are going to, or the situation in the Middle East are going to, to significantly contribute to populism and nationalism. That, that's true to a certain extent, but, but this is a tendency that has to do, uh, I think, with, with challenges related to socio-economic issues uh, for, for a significant part. 
the perception of insecurity obviously can reinforce that. Uh, but, but I think um, we have to put things in perspective in that, in that regard. No, when it comes to what we do with that, perhaps with that patriotism, but also with uh, perhaps a more um, uh, easiness to, to accept more, more groundbreaking uh, uh, so political, political solution and answers, uh, I'm not sure I agree that, that the response, I mean the relevant response <coughs> is, is to go back to national borders. I, I think the issue is actually at both levels. If you look at, at, the, at, at the modus operandi of the attacks, uh, it, it reveals first that you have uh, states within the European Union that aren't as strong and that aren't, are, uh, that aren't performing their fundamental uh, functions as well as one could hope. Uh, and I, I don't want to, 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 to get into a blame game because I think it's worthless. But, but we still have to know that, that there is lack of controls at the uh, Turkish-Greek border and, and that there are uh, shortfalls, I think, in the security apparatus in Belgium, uh, as, as they are in France too. But, but uh, it's a problem of, of nation-state functions and I fundamentally disagree that uh, we have explained, that the elites would have explained to the, to the European population that the functions of protecting European citizens has been given to the European Union level. That's fundamentally uh, the contrary. So that's, that's okay. the first point. There is, there is shortfall at the national <laughs> state level and, 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 and a strong European framework needs strong uh, European nation states. No, there is also a, a significant shortfalls at the European level too. Uh, coordination uh, uh, of, of information and intelligence, uh, border control is a big thing. A and so we cannot uh, separate the two. Uh, it's all but, but can I ask how and I do want to come back to the far mm. right in a second, but if you're saying that one of the problems might be that different states might not have done their job as well as possible, if I'm a French citizen and I'm saying, just as, and, and, I'm, and I'm hearing that one of the reasons that we've had attacks in our capital is because the Belgians aren't very good at their job. They're not doing a really good job. I'm like, so wait a second, we're investing our security with the Belgians? We're investing our security? Just in the same way the Germans like, mm. you know, actually, here's an idea. The Greeks actually don't pay taxes. We love visiting, but we see how they operate. We see how they do it. So I guess, I, I mean, isn't there a way when people are, if voters, if the French political classes don't address this in some way, what, why are we surprised when they say, well, at least the guys on the far right are talking about it. They, they have a lot of ugly ideas and they're saying some bad things, but these guys are attacking our capital. And why? Because Belgium's not very good? I mean, isn't that a problem? Uh, I'll just respond to that and okay, yeah, leave Benjamin yeah. continue. But um, as I said, uh, I think the reasons why the far right strives, at least in France, is, is, is mostly related to socioeconomic issues. The security situation doesn't make things better, but, but the issue okay. is mostly socioeconomic. Okay. Uh, and, and I think with a, a rate of unemployment that would be much smaller, I think the far right would be uh, much, uh, much lower too. Uh, <laughs> but that's, that's a different issue. Um, and uh, on, on, your on your specific question, I, I think nobody is explaining that the attacks took place because the Belgians don't, don't do their job. Uh, I think if you, again, if you look at the chain of events, uh, th 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 there are issues at every step, uh, including in France. Yeah. And so it's more an issue of national means, yes, in France, in Belgium, in Greece, for border control and, whatever, and, 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 uh, and these kind of things. 
But it's also about coordination and, and the coordination between the Belgian and the French services, for instance. Perhaps there, there, was, there wasn't enough coordination uh, between intelli national intelligence services uh, and, and, and information sharing uh, between uh, the, home, uh, the homeland security services. What the situation creates as, as problem is, is also a question of coordination between services, intelligence services that are in charge of the homeland and intelligence services that are in charge of, of, uh, of, the, of abroad. And so in France, the cooperation with Belgium is, is handled by the DGSE, which is the external uh, action service. Uh, and, 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 the, and the terrorist threat in France is handled by the interior, the Homeland Security Agency. Uh, so you have a lot of coordination mechanisms that perhaps were not as efficient as they should be on which <laughs> the, agencies, the agencies are, are working right now. Uh, again, I think the, the more I think, uh, and, and I, to the extent that I, I, I can see so far, we need to avoid blame games. Uh, we need to foster uh, cooperation. And, and, and the more we look inward on those issues, the less efficient we would be. Okay, well, let, let's, let's avoid blame games. I mean, we know in the United States we have problems with, well, we have problems with coordination, say, between the CIA, the FBI, other, other intelligence agencies that do important and valuable work. We have trouble getting them coordinated in different ways. When we're talking about other national services, like, I, I mean, if we, if we had to rely on our security policy for, on the Canadians, that would, that would be a big problem, like how well we coordinate everything. I mean, obviously, we do work with the Canadians. We work with people all around the world. It just seems that when you throw another variable into that, and I guess, again, the question that we're coming back to is about, is about Europe. And I guess I'll, 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 I'll ask you again, Laura, if you would, if you would address this. Maybe Chris is, a, you know, he, he's a little further out there than you are, but I'd like to hear you talk about it. Yeah, I, I, um, first of all, I totally disagree with your analysis of the emergence of national front. I mean, the, 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 national, the emergence of the national front was due foremost, I would say, to the uh, immigration issue. I mean, everyone knows that in France, that uh, it, started, it started to rise in, uh, in the, at the end of the 80s. Uh, I mean, the emergence of Le Pen is due to the immigration issue. And for years and years and years, it was the only issue they just prospered on. Of course, the, you can but say immigration that... Immigration is a social issue. It's not immigration. Yeah. No, it's not a social issue, immigration. It's not a social economic issue. It, it, the, uh, it's the, not a security one, at least. Yeah, I, what I'm telling you is that the, the question of mass immigration was the, the, the factor which triggered the rise of the National Front. And for years, this issue was totally hijacked by the uh, far right <laughs> because it was absolutely ignored by the other parties, because the, the <coughs> question of immigration was seen as something, <coughs> you know, uh, which was welcome, which should not, we, and, and which should not be questioned as something that could lead to some kind of, of uh, problems of integration. The, the, even the, the, the idea of, of asking, could there be some problems with integration, was at some point politically, uh, you know, uh, seen as suspicious in France. And, and what is happening now is th this is, changing, of course. And I think that the, the far right is prospering on, mm. on, on this issue precisely. I mean, of course, the socioeconomic issue is linked to that because, you know, the people some, sometimes actually wrongly think that, you know, it's, it's uh, 
if there is a mass immigration, the, the unemployment is going to grow. I, I'm not an economist, and I think these issues are very complicated. But what I can, what I'm sure of, is that uh, the, uh, the, the the issue of immigration, which has shifted actually in France because of the presence of a very big uh, Muslim minority, which is about 10%, has created in France a big debate in the last 10 years on uh, about identity issues, which is now, of course, as you know, it's, it's, there is a huge debate in France about about these issues in relation to what is happening. Because one of the questions that we have that we can't sort of wrap our minds around is why are these uh, young French-born guys going enraged, I would say, going for, for killing their, their, their French co countrymen? And what has happened to our system, to our society, which has, uh, which has made us unable, incapable of uh, you know, having them feel French. Why are they enraged? And, and as you know, they are there is a huge debate with very ideological responses, which none of them is really uh, satisfying, I would say. You have the, uh, the sort of left answer, which is it's socioeconomic, and, and we've been, we've been un incapable of providing to these uh, minorities uh, the, the, the deserved place in French society. But we know that it's not totally satisfying, satisfactory uh, explanation because precisely many of the guys who are becoming terrorists are not particularly uh, disenfranchised. Some of them come from middle class families, and it was the same with 9-11. Some were educated, uh, having finished colleges. So it's much, we know it's much more complicated. There is the cultural explanation, which is you know, the religious one. And, and for many years in France, as in the US, even mm. more in the US, I would say, the, uh, it was an explanation, the sort of cultural religious issue was not <coughs> something which was you know, uh, politically correct to, to envisage because you know, it, it was seen as, as a criticism of Islam, as Islamophobia. But I think now in France, there is this open debate about the fact that maybe there is a problem in Islam, not about all Islam, of course, but not about Muslims, but about Islam, where a, a very uh, extremist uh, brand of Islam is fighting a fight against the rest of the Muslims and killing, as we know, many, many Muslims, and also waging a war against, against the West. So th this is another part of the, uh, of, the, of the debate which is going on. I mean, uh, but to come back to the European issue, I think I, I, I'm, I'm probably you know, more moderate than, uh, than Chris in the, in the sense that uh, I think, nevertheless, that the EU has brought about, uh, you know, significant um, successes over the 50 years. And, and that, you know, the fact that so many countries have been willing to enter the EU, you know, sort of uh, uh, extraordinary romantic uh, um, uh, current, you know, that that has come, for instance, for a place I know well, which is the Eastern Europe, that I covered for many years, the way they longed for the EU, not only, as some people said, for, for the social advantages, but also because for them it was joining the, the land of liberties, of, of, of uh, values, of, of rights, of law, and, and we've seen that in Ukraine. Why is Ukraine taking this huge risk of, uh, of getting closer to the EU when it knows that it's going to be caught up by you know, Russian you know, imperial revenge, it is precisely because they know that by joining the EU, they could join a, a, a sort of uh, 
land of, of, of law and, 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 and rights and, you know, and, and legal kind of, uh, uh, you know, a space, uh, you know, uh, freedoms, uh, political freedom. But at the same time, I've always said, okay, okay, the EU, but the federal EU, the, the EU which, which uh, denies the nation states, you know, that's my gaullist part in me, you know, which is no, says no, you're not, you don't, you don't give up what has been f shaped by centuries and centuries of, of, of battles, of fights, of revolutions, of, of, uh, of culture. You don't give it up for something which is still, as you say, probably doesn't totally exist. I mean, he's, and, and, and I think this is, this is the dilemma. And, and what I would, I, I would like a Europe, I want more Europe, but when I see the migrants, to come back to the refugee crisis, when I see in September, let's not talk about terrorism, because it's not the issue, I think. I, I quite agree on that. Migrants issue in September. What do we see? In September, we have the General Assembly in New York. I'm hoping, as a French citizen, that Europe is gonna come up with some kind of plan at the General Assembly and what do I see? Nothing. There is no European plan. There is plan, no. I'm sorry, plan for what? For plan the refugees? For, for, or? For, no, not even for refugees, but I'm telling you for what is the core issue of the refugees, which is Syria. We don't see any involvement of European states together to say, okay, we, Europe, are now confronted with an existential threat. Why don't we put together our approach and our solution of what we should do in Syria? to stop this crisis and to solve the questions. I mean, to come, I mean, my understanding, again, is that Hollande was the one, one Western leader, including uh, this White House, that said, no, Assad's the problem, he has to go. That's the fundamental mm -hmm. problem. It's, this is not about ISIS, right? It is Assad who has created the refugee cr crisis. Whether or not it's intentional, whether or not it's a massive campaign of sectarian cleansing is another question. But it is without doubt he who is responsible for it. Okay. So in a sense... I agree with that. Uh, and, and so but, I, but I guess what I'm saying is, if Hollande's going to stand firm on this, what does, what does Europe, Europe. What, what does Europe as a whole do? Yeah, Especially when the United States is totally against it. The United States are, is aligned, the White House is aligned with Russia, right? Which yeah, is, I, I, which I, is I, about I'm protecting not, no. Assad. But, I mean, Absolutely. Not, I, I don't agree Absolutely. with that. I mean, I don't agree with that. I think that the, the Europeans had, a, had a, a chance I mean, they, they had an obligation, at least. I don't know if they, they would have been, you know, sufficiently efficient. They had an obligation to come up with a plan at the General <coughs> Assembly and say, okay, we are Europeans. We should, we should play a part in this Syrian crisis. And for me, it is not totally out of, um, of, of, uh, of, out of place to, to even envisage, you know, French politicians saying to our, their countrymen, okay, you don't want this huge crisis. You, Poli Poland, for instance, you don't want to be confronted with thousands of refugees. You don't want them. You, you, you're threatening us that you don't, don't want to accept them. Okay, give us, give us some, some troops to provide for a, a, a flight zone in, 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 in Syria to uh, secure, secure these, these poor people who are flying, uh, uh, you know, the, the, bomb, the, <coughs> the uh, barrel bombings of Assad and the you know, the, the danger of the Islamic mm. State. You, Germany, you, you uh, Hungary, uh, you've been so, you know, forceful not, to, not to, to welcome the French, the British. I mean, we have, we have so much power in Europe still. And isn't it better to, to uh, actually uh, 
decide that we are going to commit instead of dealing with the problems uh, uh, then for years in, in, in France, problems of integration that we say are huge. And we know that our, our societies uh, are actually running out of capacity in terms of maybe psychological and political capacity to deal with these huge flows of refugees because we don't want France to become ultra-right, frankly. And we don't want you know, the whole of Europe to shift to the far right because of, of, of such a crisis of a such a magnitude. And instead of having a, some kind of um, you know, uh, uh, initiative on the European side, we had a, a Putin plan which was absolutely well, I wonder, incredible, is this I mean, right General it Assembly. And I don't agree with you when you say that the Americans are aligned with Putin. I think that what struck me on the contrary is that when Hollande came to Washington uh, this, with this week, or last, yes, week, yes. Uh, last week, he was at the White House, and um, he came, he was under strong pressure, Hollande, you have to understand. I mean, he was under huge pressure of his own country. And he came and he wanted... He wanted to prove to the French countryman that he was going to get something from the United States. And so he's coming. He has this idea, very vague. You say that it's, it was not real, of a grand coalition. For Maybe for a minute, he caressed it under the pressure of French public opinion and of other political parties, even if it's not his uh, uh, There software. is a coalition that doesn't include Russia. That's, yeah, that's I'm talking it. about Russia, yeah. the grand coalition with Russia. So he came, and, the, and Obama clearly told him, no way. That's what Obama told him. Told him no way. Clear. Told him no way. No what? way. The grand coalition with the Russians. So for Obama, it is absolutely with ISIS. Clear. I mean, against ISIS or what? Yes. Ob um, Obama said mm. there is no way we can have a grand coalition with Russia on on this uh, Syrian issue mm. until the Russians agree to give up on Assad and h help us to get some political solution. Well, so the Americans are, right. are willing to have some kind of solution with the Russians, let, but under conditions. Yeah. Let, let, let's come back and talk about the French position, because I think this will help us. We talk about the French military position against ISIS. So I think this may help ICE, um, highlight the point I'm trying to make about Russia and the White House. What is this military campaign against ISIS <coughs> going to look like? Simone, I mean, would you like to start with this? I mean. How far does this go? What's the goal? What's the? Uh, 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 I mean, at what point do the French stop? The, the, you know? the, the military campaign against ISIS is only one. One should be and is one pillar of, of a broader strategy to 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 stabilize the Iraqo Syria quagmire and ensure that uh, strong governments, uh, inclusive governments in Baghdad and Damascus are able to hold their territory against the threat of jihadist groups, right? So that, that's the goal. So we can talk about the objective of the military campaign against ISIS. Uh, I said, and I think everybody agrees, that, that uh, airstrikes and reinforced airstrikes <coughs> aren't going to solve, uh, the, aren't going to defeat militarily and politically the Islamic State, because uh, for the simple reasons that uh, on, only uh, Lo local government uh, established based on a political transition in Syria and including uh, rebel groups uh, uh, will be able to, to defeat on the ground uh, the Islamic State <coughs> and, and politically to make sure that, that holding these territories is, is sustainable. Now, having said that, um, I, I, you know, if, if you look at facts, uh, uh, 
things are changing a little bit. And, 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 uh, and, and President Obama, I think, did ju didn't just say uh, no, uh, to, no to, to, to France's president. Uh, first, the United States agreed uh, to a, an intelligence sharing agreement that is much more significant than what was in place. Uh, the French are having a, a much more active role in the, in the military planning of the coalition. Uh, that's, that's something too. The US is going to increase its airstrikes. One may consider that this is not enough, and, 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 and we can also debate about what everything went wrong before, but I mean, the situation today is <coughs> as is, and we have to deal with it. And fourth, uh, yesterday, Secretary Carter announced uh, an enhanced use of, of special operations uh, and special forces. Uh, perhaps the French are also thinking about that, and perhaps even jointly, I don't know, uh, but, but still. Uh, I think there is a taboo in the United States about the uh, uh, ground troops uh, expression, but as a matter of fact, you have troops that are perhaps special, but at no, least no, no, are... No. Okay, l l let me rephrase the question. So what I mean is that okay. uh, things are still moving forward, uh, maybe not quick enough, and that's, that's the right. goal of President Hollande's Grand Coalition thing. Uh, but at the end of the day, as I said several times earlier, we will not solve the, the security situation without a, political, without a political transition in Syria and without establishing a state that is able to control its territory. Okay. Chris, did you were... You were uh, I didn't, but I, do, I think the uh, taboo in the United States uh, about ground troops is, troops is not about the expression, it's about the thing. You know, I don't think, I don't do think mean, the country is ready for a major military involvement in the Middle East again. It's been, it hasn't been that long. All right. Uh, and, yeah. f and France is? Benjamin, do you want to? Um, well, I guess I do, I mean, I, I, I do want, I do want to, if I can tell you my purpose for doing this, because if you were saying before the refugee crisis is not really the issue, these guys are all homegrown, right? My question is, okay, then why are the French running a campaign well, in Syria when the attacks were made by people who have... EU documentation. What is that about? Okay. And that's why I'm saying, I'm, I'm very, very quickly, the United States is not, the White House is not waging a real campaign against ISIS, and neither is Russia. All this talk about a grand coalition, what coalition? There are three dubious, to be most generous, campaigns that are being run against the same outfit at the same time. So this is what I'm getting at. What are the French doing? If you are saying that we know that these people are here, it's not about the refugee crisis, and it's about, okay, so they're dealing with the Syrians, or they're dealing with ISIS, but had, the real problem is not coming out of the mind of Abu Bakr Baghdadi, right? It's boys that are brought up in Paris or Brussels. So what's the campaign about? Um, well, first you have, you have a couple things. Uh, you do have homegrown uh, terrorism. These people are Belgian and French citizens. Uh, but I think right now Syria is clearly what I call really the center of gravity. I mean, uh, now more and more of these people are going to train to Syria. We have between 500 and 1,000 French citizens <coughs> who are in Syria. We're coming, you know, coming back from, uh, How from many? Syria. How many? Sorry, what was the numbers you said? Sorry? How, what were the numbers? Between 500 and 1,000. Uh, I mean, the numbers always change. It's mm -hmm. obviously very unclear. Uh, and, and some of them go to fight. Some of them go to train and, 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 and go back carry out uh, attacks in, in Europe, especially now that we think that this, this corresponds to maybe a shift of strategy from the Islamic State to carry more attacks 
in uh, in Europe, maybe to inspire more f more fighters to to come, or you know, it's part of a broader apocalyptic vision from uh, from the, the Islamic State uh, uh, leaders. But it's true that it's you know we we don't really know yet, and probably the investigation on these attacks will bring more information over the exact level of link and you know command and control between al Baghdadi, Raqqa, Syria, and and the, these attacks that were that were carried out. But clearly today, I mean, it, it's acting as a vacuum. For for along these young radicals who want to uh, who want to go fight the fight, it's not the only one. I mean, uh, that is why the French military is uh, is very over is on the brink of overstretching right now. Uh, first, we have ten thousand soldiers who are deployed on, on the French territory per se to protect special sites like synagogues or or uh, uh, religious sites that are under under threat. You have close to four thousand soldiers in the Sahel, so in, you know notably in, in Mali. They've been deployed for the last uh, three years to fight against Al Qaeda in the Islamic uh, Maghreb. Uh, you have other hot, you know, hot spots that are uh, very troubling, such as Libya. It is still in you know, a situation of chaos mm -hmm. with a very um, fragile peace process, and and uh, ISIS controlling Sirte, which is one of the the harbor cities in uh, in um, in Libya. There's actually a report I think in New York Times a, a couple of days ago that said that it was probably beyond Syria and Iraq where. The, the the ISIS point where that was the cl most closely connected to al Baghdadi and the leadership in the, in in Syria. Um, so you know there, there's clearly I think a discrepancy between the available means that the French can put on the fight against ISIS <coughs> in Syria and and the, the political objectives that we have. And the political objectives are as as uh, as, uh, um, as Simon uh, said it, you know, uh, uh, engineering uh, a political transition, an exclusive one, without Assad. Uh, that I mean, can I ask, my, my understanding was that one of the reasons that, that, the, that the French started to campaign against ISIS in Syria, as well as Iraq, as you were saying before, was because a, a lot of it was, a, a, or let me ask, wasn't it a response to Putin's escalation? No, right. Uh, no, because no? I mean, my understanding, just, like, just my understanding was that Paris uh, thought that they needed to have a, a real hand in the game. Okay, so what, yeah. what, what was it about then? Uh, as you know, France participated into the air campaign in Iraq from the very beginning, right. since September 14, right? Uh -huh. And it did not participate in the campaign in Syria because uh, the French position was that if we strike ISIS in Syria, we are only going to strengthen Assad because we will weaken its main adversary. And as they are not yeah. fighting each other, if we if we if we fight ISIS, Assad will have its hands free um, against the other rebels. Right. right. What's changed is that uh, France got direct information that the Islamic State in Syria, yeah. okay. especially, was planning terrorist attacks against France. And France was proven right. Okay. And so France started uh, in September 15 to to right. strike uh, command and control centers, training camps. Uh, of the Islamic State in Syria, and and the attacks uh, having proven France being wrong, being being right about the threat right. and the planning in Syria, uh, led to to an intensification of the airstrikes. And so the military objective is to degrade the and and to degrade the Islamic State ability to 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 these uh, terrorist attacks planning. Can I ask like, directly? While, while it was uh, just very yeah. quickly, and you can actually answer this, Benjamin. While there was while the campaign picked up abroad. In Syria and uh, in Raqqa, what about after Charlie Hebdo? What was the, what was the French campaign like then? Uh, I guess my question is, did people, did people say, "Wow, this is insane. It could get a lot worse," because you were saying before, "This is our 9/11. This is as bad as it can get," and it got worse. So what happened in what happened inside domestically in France? 
what were the what were, what were the responses there? If we see that you know what the responses were abroad. Um, well, first, I mean the Charlie Hebdo attacks actually were much less. Uh, connected to ISIS or, mm -hmm. or Syria because the Kouachi brothers who were the murderer at uh, the Charlie Hebdo offices had actually uh, traded in Yemen for, for a few months. Uh, but they were veterans of previous sales that were more closely linked to the Iraq war in 03 and 04. But they had not left the territory apart for, uh, for Yemen. And the hyper attack was carried out by Koulibaly, who I don't even think uh, left the country. He was radicalized in uh, in jail, so that you know uh, that is even even more complicated in this uh, in this respect. It mostly left um, uh, open to domestic responses, you know, ramping up of security measures and uh, more uh, resources devoted to intelligence, both in terms of uh, hiring people, training people, and also uh, new technological means in, uh, in intelligence. But I think th clearly, uh, you know, as, as Simon said, there's been two uh, steps in uh, the, fi the fight against ISIS from, uh, from France. The first one was in August, September. I think it was a, mostly a consequence of the foil attack against the, the Talis train, right. um, which was already linked to uh, Abaoud. And, and this is when the French started striking in Syria, which they, mm. they had been very reluctant to do before. Uh, but really on very specific areas where we had intelligence that okay, attacks were being uh, planned yeah. against France. Now, th the second step is now, uh, is after these attacks. I mean, now it's much more ambitious. The Charles de Gaulle aircraft carrier has been brought to the Mediterranean to mm. triple the, the available forces to, um, the available French forces mm. to strike uh, ISIS. But despite all this, I mean, we have to be very uh, clear. The French clearly don't have the capacity to decisively degrade mm. ISIS. Um, uh, they, they can strike in areas, first as retaliation, just and also uh, in, in areas where we consider that you know attacks are being prepared against uh, the European territory. So basically, areas where we have intelligence that European citizens are training. Um, but there's only the United States, and that is what Hollande ultimately came to Washington for. There's only a much more robust U.S. involvement. Uh, both militarily and politically, that can uh, uh, shift the balance of, uh, of forces in this fight. Let me, we're, uh, we started a few minutes late, so I just wanted to see if there's any questions. If we, we can just push it like about five or six minutes, see if there's any questions from the audience. Uh, Rafi, if you can, does someone have a, a, a microphone? Mm -hmm. Can you walk it up here? Thanks. This gentleman right here. Rafi, if you could stand up Thank and you. introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm Rafi Danziger. I'm a consultant to APEC. And my question is, uh, has to do with a statement by Amos Yadlin, the former head of Israeli intelligence, just yesterday, saying that Iran still remains a much bigger threat to the West than ISIS because Iran has uh, much bigger cap capabilities. It's just as inimical to the West as is, uh, a, uh, as is ISIS. And it can never be seen as, a, uh, as any kind of a, a lie in anything that the West is trying to achieve because they'll always do everything possible to undermine what the West is trying to achieve. And the question is, is there any kind of sympathy for that kind of view anywhere in Europe, in the um, oh, okay. policymakers? Uh, or is the view that perhaps now, because Iran is anti-ISIS, it actually could be seen as, uh, at least for now, a tactical ally uh, to the Europeans? Okay. Thank you. Simon, would you like to start with that? And, right. um, Thank you. What I would say is that um, I think there is the recognition that Iran poses a, a strategic uh, challenge, I would say, to, uh, 
to the situation in the Middle East and, and so by extension uh, to, to Europe and to France in particular, considering uh, French, France's close relationships and, and uh, defense uh, agreements with several countries in the Gulf and with Israel, of course. Um, but second of all, I think from the European standpoint, the nuclear agreement uh, that uh, was agreed last summer and its implementation uh, will deal with the most pressing strategic threat that, that Iran uh, could be posing to Europe in the next uh, years. Uh, uh, and, and that uh, the ability of Iran and to, to, I mean to, to, to get into a more, I would say, a constructive cooperation with its neighbors uh, will be key to the stability of the region and, and therefore to the stability of Europe because the Syria crisis is the very example that instability in the Middle East uh, has necessarily has uh, consequences for, for Europe. Lastly, I would say that yes, in, in uh, many European countries, and I think in, in France too, to some extent, and, and uh, surprisingly uh, on the same side as, as the ones that, that support more cooperation with, with Russia, uh, there is sometimes the idea that, that uh, Iran should be more involved into regional cooperation, France should be more engaged uh, with, with Iran to, to discuss and cooperate on regional issues. I think the nuclear argument will make it automatically, will make, it, will make such cooperation automatic, uh, but cooperation, that doesn't mean uh, 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 an alignment of strategic uh, interests mm. and objectives. So we might cooperate more with Iran, <coughs> but that doesn't make their interests necessarily more aligned with ours. So I, I, I would just say, Rafi, I'm sure you probably know that after both the Charlie Hebdo, Ypercaché attacks, and then the uh, November 13th attacks, both the Iranians, the Syrians, and Hezbollah media ran an information campaign precisely like that, that we've been warning you, we've been warning all of Europe, we've been warning you, in particular France, you're, you're responsible for creating terrorism, now you should come and talk to us because we have the solution. Actually, it was in the Russian press as well. So there was a very impressive information campaign. Um, let's have one more question. I believe this gentleman up here had one. Thank you. <coughs> My name is Andre, good friend. Uh, there's been a, a very interesting uh, discussion. I appreciated very much the different perspectives. An undercurrent running through them all was that to address this, this threat to the EU's existence to, to Europe, that the individual nation states should be strengthened, that perhaps the EU should be re-examined, that Schengen should be re-examined, the Euro re-examined, because it's a, it's a chimera, I think yeah, you'd used. It's something which doesn't quite exist yet. We've had similar existential threats. I'm sorry, if you could, we are yeah, running out of time, and I, I want a few I, I, people I, I, I to answer very this. Quick. Uh, okay. We've had similar existential threats in the U.S. from the very beginning with regards to the, the different uh, states fighting with each other, uh, weakness of currency, etc. Our approach has been to strengthen the center, to strengthen Washington, to strengthen the Constitution, to, to centralize the, current, uh, the, the currency, to create a, an FBI, etc. Uh, and... and in that, I think no one would roll back that to, to say the, straight, the state should be divided again. And you'd mentioned that there was a Europe before Schengen. Yes. Sir, but I'm, I'm really, if, if you don't, I'm going to okay. have to move on to someone else, okay? Are you asking a question, or what are you doing? Is, why, not, why is the focus on central, on uh, strengthening the nation state rather than on strengthening? Uh, 
Why don't we, Chris, why don't you start, then Benjamin. I th I'll, let's give everyone a shot at this. I would just have to say it's because they don't have the legitimacy to strengthen the center the way they do here. There was a consent, there was popular consent, more or less here, to strengthen it. But if there's, not, there's no, if there's no uh, European army, it's that you cannot go to the publics in individual nation, European nation states and say, we're going to need about 5% more out of you in taxes to send to Brussels so that we can build up these institutions that you mentioned, a European army, a European border patrol, et cetera. So I don't think that they have the, the democratic legitimacy to make the appeal to alter the unwritten constitution that way. Benjamin? Um, I, I think one of the problems we have in the way we've built the European institutions is that we're often in the middle of the road. We create instruments. We don't give them executive authority or you know, to enforce the, the efficiency of these instruments. That was the case with the euro. I mean, it made a lot of economic sense to have a, a, a common money uh, uh, to lower the, uh, the prices of exchange, the cost of exchanges, and, and to have like a stronger Europe in the international stage economically. But we didn't have uh, common uh, uh, fiscal rules. We didn't have you know, a, a minister of finance or a common budget to be able to enforce the efficiency of the money. It's the same thing with Schengen. I mean, the, the problem with Schengen is that you don't have the means, for example, uh, the, the, you know, enough resources to control uh, the external borders of the, uh, of the European Union. And even if you go back to national borders, you're going to have the same issues. You're going to have bordering states that are going to be overwhelmed. And then you have you know, potentially uh, refugees, for example, that are still on the European continent. And you, you're still going to have a, a, an issue of circulation between uh, between European states. I mean, you take the case in the United States, you do have external borders in the United States, and yet you have 11 million uh, um, uh, undocumented uh, immigrants. So I think the way to see it, in, in my view, first, you, you have to stop opposing uh, nation states or the European Union, because now they're weak at the two levels. It's not like the European Union is strong and nation states are, uh, are weak. They're weak at the, mm -hmm. you need to find solutions on both levels. I mean, you need more, uh, military spending and involvement at a national level, because I think there's no illusion that the fight against terror is going to be uh, uh, taken care of by a European army. It's obviously going to be cooperation between intelligence agencies, security agencies, and armies at the national level, but maybe with more common coordination. But you also need to straighten the, the current instruments, such as uh, Schengen and the control of, uh, of, of borders. <laughs> I think you, 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 know, you can reinforce both levels. Thanks. Uh, I want to give everyone, Simon, if you would like to, do you want to? On that? Yes. Yeah, and then we'll, we'll finish. As, as I said, I, I think that I would agree with Benjamin. I think there are shortfalls at the national state level and at the European level. Uh, so we need to address them accordingly. Uh, but I would still note that historically, uh, the European construction is very young. If you put things in perspective, uh, over the last decades, we have reinforced the European Union very strongly. Uh, I don't know yet what is the, uh, the end project politically and institutionally. Uh, I'm not sure that, that the American history is, is, the, is the exact right precedent uh, that, that we should uh, there are certainly things to learn about it, especially uh, avoiding a major war to, to build a more uh, coherent federation. But, but, uh, Still, uh, I think the, Euro project, the European project is a very original and, and a new concept. And so uh, uh, it will take time and we have to accept it. Well, first of all, I mean, I, I would say that uh, you have to understand that uh, Europe is not the US. So 
So the, U the US, uh, the, 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 the Europe and the European Union is made of century old nations which have been you know, shaped, as I said before, by you know, solidarities and culture and languages has nothing to do with what's happening in the, you can't compare a European state with, a, with a, an American state. So in that sense, there is no possible comparison to be made. And, and, uh, and that brings me to, to the next step, which is, of course, you have to strengthen Europe on both, on both levels. But in the absence of a, of a strong Europe, which is now in some ways unraveling, in some ways uh, in, uh, before our eyes, I think that to strengthen the nation state and not to give it up in, in because you say we can strengthen the, the European levels, but that means you weaken the, uh, the, the national one, I think, would be, would be a big mistake. And, and what I think is that Europe will exist not because of the will of some, uh, uh, you know, federalist uh, uh, bureaucrats uh, uh, or politicians who will decide that Europe is going to exist. It won't happen that way. I think Europe can exist when you have solidarity between the European nations. And for, for instance, solidarity for for blood, uh, blood spent. You know, if, you, if, you, if you fight together for, for something, then you create something which is very strong. I mean, I think Christopher and Benjamin mentioned that there is no European army. And this is really real. You know, a, a nation, uh, um, nation, you, you cannot, uh, Europe could not exist as a super state without a European army. But you can't, you can't you create a European army by a bureaucratic decree. Uh, so for now, I think that in the short term, the nation state have, have to be strengthened, the borders have to be strengthened, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you, you should not continue, of course, on the European levels to strengthen you know, the, the, uh, the exchange of information, the intelligence, the uh, external borders, and all the things, all the tools that we have at our disposal. Thank you. Uh, Laure, Simon, Benjamin, Christopher, thank you all very much, and thank you all for coming. And thanks again to Hudson for hosting us this afternoon.